Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. My name is Rick Samprin. In this edition of the GMH podcast, who won and who lost Wednesday's French leaders debate? Will Hamilton's LRT project be a great economic driver for the city or an epic fail? And find out why a Canadian musician has hundreds of names tattooed on his arms. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Organizations like yours uh, that continue to spread misinformation and disinformation on the science around vaccines, around how we're going to actually get through this pandemic and be there for each other and keep our kids safe is part of why we're seeing such... um, unfortunate uh, anger and lack of understanding of basic science. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton. My name is Rick Samprin. That was Liberal leader Justin Trudeau and uh, saying that organizations such as Rebel News Network need to take accountability for some of the polarization in Canada over vaccines in the COVID-19 pandemic. It came after last night's French language leaders debate in Gatineau, Quebec. Speaking of which, let's bring in our first guest this morning to talk about what happened last night. Her name is Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University, and we say good morning to Dr. Turnbull. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? Not too bad. Um, Did anyone win last night's debate? I mean, like, there was, I don't think there was a sort of knockout punch where it was a sort of defining moment of the debate, but if I had to pick a winner, I would say that it was Mr. Trudeau. Uh, he managed, I think, to handle a lot of questions in a way that was very substantive. He, I think I thought, to be honest, that a number of times other leaders sort of teed him up to give a really good answer to something. And I thought, oh, maybe that didn't go as well as they thought. But I thought he, he you know, kind of got through it in a way that was, he was able to put forward some, again, some kind of substantive, clear explanations of what his platform is. I don't think it was a particularly great night for Blanchette, to be honest. He needed a great night last night, and I'm not sure that happened. I'm in a total agreement because, and I only watched the first hour and then it was, you know, fast to bed. Um, but I thought Trudeau was good. And I thought Blanchette, I thought he had the biggest opportunity, especially with the French language debate, to really put that stake in the ground to say, you know, we're winning more seats in Quebec this time around. Oh, I think so. And I mean, he really, I, again, I think he really needed it. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how the vote plays out in Quebec. Um, Jagmeet Singh, obviously, like last time, lost all but one seat in the province. But this time, I think he's more competitive. Like he's, you know, his campaign is going better. It's got more energy. Um, his candidate, Ruth Ellen Brasso, is reoffering. And so, I mean, he's making more of a play. And I think that could be a significant threat to the Bloc Québécois. I mean, historically, you know, when Jack Layton did really well in Quebec that time, it was because he, he totally got at the Bloc Québécois vote. And so those parties are, are uh, close to each other in a lot of ways in terms of social justice and things like that. And so we'll see, you know, how it turns out. But yeah, Blanchette was, was very scrappy for sure, but I don't, I don't know that he really landed as well as he needed to to be able to pull more votes toward him. What did you make of uh, Mr. O'Toole's performance last night? I mean, I don't, I mean, we didn't really hear a lot. I don't think that was new from him, even though he got his, his costing out a few hours before the debate. 
he is obviously very conscious of the fact that this is a Quebec, you know, going to be maybe a heavily Quebec audience because the debate was in French. And so he spent a lot of time talking about what um, he wanted to do in terms of working with the provinces. And Mr. Trudeau was always invading the provincial space and he shouldn't do that and we're not going to do that. And the, but then that just gave Trudeau an opportunity to say, no, we don't. We just work with the provinces. And the Canada Health Act pre- prevents that kind of encroachment that you're talking about. So I'm like, oh, God, like, <laughs> I'm not sure O'Toole totally landed it. But he got out alive, that's for sure. It wasn't like a bad night. I just don't think he, it probably could have gone a little bit better for him. Uh, The latest Ipsos poll shows that the Conservatives do have a slight lead over the Liberals. Will last night's or even tonight's debate change any of that? Personally, like, again, with no moment where anybody really nailed it and no moment where anybody really flubbed it, um, I don't think there will be an immediate shift. That said, sometimes it takes a little while for this to percolate, and maybe it's going to be um, you know, a couple of days before people start to think, okay, well, you know, I'm going to make up my mind on who I'm going to vote for, and maybe the debates will be part of that calculation. I, but at this point, I, I don't think there's a momentum shift that will affect tonight's debate at all. So, like, it'll be kind of a, a rematch tonight, I guess, with not, no sense of a front runner going in in any big way. Is there any momentum that's carried between debates because they're back-to-back? That's interesting. Like, I, and I mean, I guess we'll find that out tonight. If there was issue, if there were issues last night. That the, I mean, the leaders will all have gone back to their their team last night and say, okay, you know, what do we want to watch out for tonight with the English debate? And so I would think that they'll probably want to dig in on the things that they managed to get traction on last night and avoid some areas that didn't go as well for them. I suspect that the leaders will continue to push Trudeau on why he called an election, which. You know, I'm not. I don't know if if people are still really listening to that or not, but it but it gives them an opportunity to kind of go at him for something, and I think probably there'll be some continued questioning around whether Mr. O'Toole, um, you know, how he seems to be the only one who's who's saying I want to pull back the Serb sort of as soon as possible, and maybe a little bit more pressure on him for what he would plan to do if he was prime minister, and I think that's part of what Trudeau will want to do tonight, maybe even more than he did last night, is try to create some concern or worry about what Mr. Trudeau would have, or sorry, what Mr. O'Toole might do if given um, access to the PM kind of thing. we got a minute left with uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University here on Good Morning Hamilton. Uh, a lot of PPC supporters are irate that Maxime Bernier has not been invited to the debates. Should he be there? I mean, I mean, uh, <laughs> like, depending on who you ask, right? Yeah. Like on some level, the, the Leaders Debate Commission came up with the rules. And the rules are, you know, you have to have some way in there in terms of did you elect somebody in the last election and or did, is your popular support enough? And I think it's 4%. So if you're not at 4%, either in the last election or now in terms of public opinion polls, you don't, you don't get to play. I mean, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that once you not, you're not at the table, it's harder to get back to the table. You know what I mean? So it's sort of like the, the larger parties are are benefited from benefiting from this. But at the same time, I mean, Annemie Paul was there. She is not in a great position at this point. Um, you know, she was still at the table. There would have been six people around the table with Bernier. And so I think people are, sometimes you get concerned around, okay, like how, <laughs> at what point can you, you kind of lose control of the conversation because right. there's so many people. So I think that's the challenge with that. Very much so. Dr. Turnbull, really appreciate the time today. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thanks so much. The uh, English language debate will be broadcast from 9 to 11 tonight, and you can hear it on 900 CHML and watch it on Global. 
Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The Hamilton Community Legal Clinic is going to be holding a rally at 11 o'clock this morning at the City Hall Forecourt in advance of the Emergency and Community Services Council meeting today at 1.30. Now, the group, along with a bunch of supporters, demanding that the City of Hamilton stop evicting unhoused people from their tents and work with community stakeholders to come up with a new plan to help these individuals. Marcy McKelvin is a K-6 outreach coordinator with Keeping 6 Hamilton Harm Reduction Action League, and she joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Marcy, how are you? I am absolutely wonderful. And yourself? Not too bad. So there is a rally that's going to be going on before the Emergency and Community Services Council meeting begins at 1.30 today. Uh, tell us what's happening today. Uh, today we're having, Hamilton Community Legal Clinic is hosting a rally that we will be speaking at in addition to a member of HamSmart. Um, I believe there's also people from social service agencies and encampment residents speaking. And it's just to talk about and kind of give education and awareness to what's happening with encampment. Um, as many people listening may know or may not, uh, there was a protocol in place for the past almost year um, after an injunction that was filed last year against the removal of encampments. And the city, I believe on the 30th, um, decided the 30th was the day that the protocol was repealed. So what that means is the city is able to evict encampment residents kind of at will. Um, and we wanted to speak up in the rally is just to say like there's no housing options shelter constantly faces capacity issues especially in the women's sector and if there's nowhere for people to go taking a tent away from them probably isn't the answer <laughs> um so yeah it's just a rally i'm pretty sure there's going to be food there's going to be people speaking and just awareness and community thing and trying to get people in the community out there to that support their unhoused neighbors so where are these people being taken? Their, their tents are being removed and they're being taken where? They're not being really taken anywhere. Um, so right now, I know yesterday there was a few women that I met personally that wanted to get into shelter and there was no female shelter space available for them. Um, so they were left outside. So is that forced just to put their tent up somewhere else? Yeah, so they'll put it up. Most people will put it up somewhere else. Um, until the city comes again and asks them to move. Some people just end up sleeping on the side of the road in stairwells and wherever, right? anywhere they can find any form of shelter or no shelter. Now, I recall city officials a couple of weeks ago when this uh, announcement was was made that uh, you know the, the effort was there, at least the mentality was there to, to get these people into uh, affordable housing situations, uh, into the shelter system, but you're saying that's just not happening. Yeah, no, there's some people have been housed. I don't know the number. I I would question if I think the city's quoting 404. I read in an article somewhere. I personally, um, away from K6, my personal opinion, I would question that. And I would love the names of the 400 people that they have. Um, but some people are, right? There's some people that are able to access shelter. The men, single men have an easier easier access to shelter. There's way more shelter space for single men in Hamilton than there is for women and couples. Um, but women and couples, there's a lot of days that people cannot get in, right? We're chatting. Um, affordable, you speak of affordable housing, there, there is none available. There's wait lists, the access to housing wait list. I don't know the exact amount of years, but it's more than five. Um, I know someone that's been waiting for housing for, I think, seven years. 
Wow, that's so that's not the idea is to get people into affordable housing. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a long time away. Yeah, that's yeah. a long time wait. Uh, Marcy McKelvin is our guest, K6 Outreach Coordinator with Keeping 6 Hamilton Harm Reduction Action League. We're talking about a rally that's being held today. It begins at 11 o'clock at the City Hall Forecourt, and it comes in advance of the Emergency and Community Services Council meeting at 1.30 today. Is the goal of the rally, is the goal of your message to ask council, or maybe uh, a little harsher term, to demand council that they repeal this encampment protocol? So the protocol was in place and they've repealed it. So the protocol was allowing people, it wasn't perfect by any means. There was like some gaps in it, um, but the protocol allowed for five tents in a city park. Um, I think it was 50 meters away from like playgrounds um, based on like a vulnerability screening index tool that the city has um, VI Spadat. I think what the ask of the rally and this, I, I believe, I think you'd have to talk to HDLC to get like their exact ask, but the ask is if, in simple terms, if the city can't meet people's needs, to let them meet their own, if that means having a tent in a park. Um, a big part of the rally, again, is community awareness, right? Like, you'll see in the paper that the city's saying business owners and neighbors of encampments, like people that live around parks and stuff, are complaining and don't want encampments, and there's violence, and there's drugs and graffiti and feces and all that stuff. And and my message is if you take a tent away, that stuff still exists, right? I think it was in the news repeatedly recently that public washrooms are closed. If you're unhoused and there's no public washrooms, you have to go to the bathroom, right? So taking down encampments and moving people out of tents doesn't make it so they don't have to use the bathroom anymore. Sorry, being kind of like, graphic on your show but we just want people in the community to know that unhoused people are just people right and like let them exist and if there's no answer if you can't meet their needs let them meet theirs right like a tent we don't believe we don't believe tents are the ideal living quarters i've lived in tents personally in my life it's not fun it's not camping um it's literally survival and until there's affordable housing, until there's shelters that meet people like where they're at, people with mental health and substance use disorder or substance use behaviors, like they have nowhere to go, right? The shelters are restrictive around that stuff sometimes. And we just want people to be able to exist. Marcy's going to uh, stick around for another segment, and she's going to share with us how she ended up living in a tent and for how long. So you'll want to stick around to hear that story. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Continuing our discussion with Marcy McKelvin from the Keeping 6 Hamilton Harm Reduction Action League regarding today's rally at the City Hall forecourt. They're demanding the city of Hamilton stop evicting unhoused people from their tents. Before the break, uh, Marcy was referring to uh, her life in a tent. Marcy, what happened? Okay. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you a brief part of my story. Somehow this always comes up, and I'm, I'm an open book. Um, I started using substances as, I'm not sure why, I don't think it was ever like, let's go to a party and have fun. I think I was a young person that had like some mental health stuff going on and couldn't totally figure it out, and substances filled whatever made me forget that stuff maybe um continue using substances throughout my life was in a group home at one point went to in and out of like rehab centers and 
and forced forced abstinence doesn't work for everyone. Being forced into treatment, being forced into like healthcare and medical stuff, and in and out of psych wards, and and I ended up being unemployable for a while, right? Until until I was able to look at my stuff, until I was able to get the help I needed, right? And and that help for me was people meeting me where I was at, being on house and on the street and having people show up and give me food and tell me that I matter instead of we don't like you or you're bad or you're horrible or sorry, or your behavior is wrong. Like it was, so I ended up like on the street and there was a core group of people that just cared about me. And because of that, and it took a long time. It wasn't like they cared about me and three days later I'm sober and houseable and employed. It was a long journey. I started using as a young teenager and I I got I have substance use disorder. I have, there's a huge difference between people that use substances and substance use disorder. That's a whole other show. But my mental health and all that stuff, I was finally able to look at it because people didn't move me every two days. Right? They didn't kick me out of where I was because I shouldn't be there, because the bylaw says I shouldn't be there. They allowed me to be where I was and they came and talked to me. And after a while, I'm like, hey, I need to make some changes. And today, I'm I'm where I'm at, and I'm able to try to be that person for someone else. And that's a big part of what K6 does, is we just meet people where they're at. We don't go up to someone and say, you need to change, and you need to change your drug use, or you need to see a psychiatrist, or you need to go do this, or whatever. Like, we just, we let people be people, and we walk alongside them. And I think, like, if more people were able to do that in a way, you would see a huge change. Most definitely. Uh, Marcy, thanks for sharing that story. I know it's it's one that obviously that you have lived, and it's something that you can now reflect on and say that you're in a better place. And I think, you know, yeah. with this topic in general, I think we all want to see everyone in a better place. We may differ on how to get to that place, but hopefully the city and organizations like the one that you're involved with can, uh, can get us to that finish line. Thanks for the time today, um, and uh, best of luck with the rally and getting your message out there. Thank you very much. Thanks again, Marcy. Today's rally again begins at 11 at the City Hall Forecourt in advance of the Emergency and Community Services Council meeting at 1.30 this afternoon. It's, it's a topic that doesn't have an easy answer because, of course, we do not want people living in tents or outside in the elements in this city or any city. But are the supports there for those individuals? Marcy says no. In many cases, there are not. We know there's a lack of affordable housing in this city. We know that the shelter system is overloaded. We know that the wait list for affordable housing is into the thousands. There's not an easy answer. These people don't want to be in tents, but they also don't want to be without their tents and looking for a place to go. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Sensational story has been the LRT for, well, a number of years, but it is now moving forward after city councillors voted 11-3 to yesterday in favour of a memorandum of understanding with Metrolinx to build the LRT from McMaster University all the way to Eastgate Square. And Mayor Fred Eisenberger says Hamilton is one step closer to a brighter future. A cleaner, more sustainable future with significant expanded and improved public transportation that will be reliable, equitable, and will provide jobs and opportunity and development for many years to come. 
And Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. We say good morning to Mayor Eisenberger. Fred, how are you? Well, good morning, Hamilton, and congratulations, Rick, on the uh, the new uh, show. Uh, uh, you know, always great opportunity to share uh, more information with people in the broader community, so uh, congratulations. Thank you very much, and yes, likewise, this is what this show is all about, is talk about the biggest issues in Hamilton. Uh, I, I can't think of anything bigger than LRT over the last handful of years. How huge was yesterday's vote? Well, you know what, uh, this is the uh, the single largest investment uh, by other levels of government in our city, uh, in the history of our city. Uh, it'll be transformative, uh, it's city building, it is uh, climate change impacting uh, to, the, to the good in terms of reducing CO2 emissions through an electrified train. Uh, it provides, uh, you know, fast and reliable public transportation from uh, Eastgate to McMaster University as kind of the first tranche. Of, uh, of development and uh, will will inspire the the kind of housing that uh, that we need going into the future along the corridor and the renewal of all the commercial and residential that currently exists there that is certainly ripe for rebuilding and uh, and repurposing and intensifying that will generate more tax dollars and provide more housing opportunities all the way along the corridor. So it's transformational, and if you combine that with uh, the other recent announcement on the $450 million uh, traditional transit uh, uh, bus uh, partnership between the federal, provincial, and municipal governments, three-party funding, uh, that will uh, improve the A-line going up from uh, the waterfront to, uh, to the airport, uh, give us a new bus storage facility that will allow us to electrify, uh, provide electric charging capacity that uh, we currently do not have for buses that uh, will then allow us to get into the next phase of of uh, bus vehicle purchases, which is electrification. And on top of that, all day go happening at uh, the Harb Waterfront uh, Station, which uh, you know is on the hour every hour from 5:30 until 12:30 uh, in the evening. Uh, that is just such a great plus for our city as well to get around the greater Toronto-Hamilton area uh, a lot easier without having to drive the car. And so all of that is just a massive transit investment that is going to speak to the real solid, bright future of the city of Hamilton, given those investments plus all the other things that are happening right now. You painted a great picture on how Hamilton and Hamiltonians are going to be moving forward with all these transportation announcements. Read the LRT. We know there's going to be a ratification vote at City Council, basically a rubber stamping. What happens after that? What are some of the next steps to get this project underway? Well, clearly we have to uh, reinstitute the uh, the procurement process that was uh, you know truncated when the uh, the project was cancelled. Uh, and I do want to acknowledge and give credit to uh, Premier Ford and Minister uh, Carolyn Mulroney, who originally had canceled the project and have come around to understanding and appreciating value and the importance of this investment for the city of Hamilton. They've uh, found a way of making it work alongside with the uh, the federal government, and that included uh, Minister McKenna did an awful lot of work. A former Hamiltonian that uh, you know now resides in Ottawa but has her heart in Hamilton and really wanted to make this project work for her city. And uh, Philomena Tassi, who did a terrific job uh, advocating for this on the federal side to, to get the $1.7 billion to make it all go. So the next step is really getting that procurement done, uh, finalizing the, the contract arrangements, getting some of the uh, additional properties that have to be acquired, acquired, so that uh, the shovels can get in the ground uh, in, in 2022. And I think we're talking about 
mid-2022 when, uh, you know, all of that work will be completed and uh, shovels can hit the ground and start, uh, you know, putting the uh, the construction employment job uh, phase into action. And, and the, the employment numbers here are significant. They're, uh, they're not small. There are three to 4,000 uh, employees for four to five, maybe even six years that will uh, be part of the development and construction of the, uh, of the LRT. Uh, hopefully all local employment, I think, is why, why you know, some of our construction trades were so keen on this because uh, they, they certainly appreciate the opportunity to find that additional employment for them. And uh, great for our economy uh, coming out of the pandemic. Uh, you know, employment opportunities are critically important. Uh, so this, this line will provide that. But there is also the development employment opportunities that comes out of that and the new commercial that uh, will help service that higher density residential along that corridor. So there's, you know, really good, solid uh, economic opportunities that come out of this over the long run. But on the short term, it's uh, get the procurement done, uh, finalize the contracts, and then get shovels in the ground. Uh, We only got about 30 seconds. When do you hope the first trains to be running? Ah. Yeah, critical question. Uh, you know, traditionally the, these projects take four to five years to uh, to complete. Uh, so uh, you know what? Let's let's you know we're we're at 2021, so 2026 uh, is likely could could be done sooner. Uh, you know, if uh, if the, the the contracts are are, are more efficient and uh, and you know and, and I know that the, the Metrolinx is much more efficient now than they have been in terms of all the projects they've been doing. So they, they know exactly how to roll these things out. And so uh, I, I would anticipate 2025, 2026 is when we're going to see us close to completion, or if not, complete it. Sounds exciting. Mayor Eisenberger, thanks for the time today. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Rick. Good morning, Mayor- Hamilton. Yes, good morning, Hamilton, indeed. That's the name of the new show. My name is Rick Samprin. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. This week is National Suicide Awareness Week. Tomorrow's World Suicide Prevention Day. And award-winning Canadian rocker Rob Nash continues to inspire those who are in a very bad place. Now, Nash was critically injured in a car crash in Winnipeg, but his lengthy recovery sparked a severe depression which put him in a very dark place for about two and a half years. But this story didn't end with Rob's suicide. Rather, it ignited a movement called the Rob Nash Project. And here to tell us about it is Rob Nash. Rob, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. You have gone from near death to literally saving people's lives. How have you done it? Yeah, well, yeah, I had this accident when I was 17. I was hit by a semi-truck, actually found with no pulse, not breathing. And obviously you can hear by my voice, I came back to life, I resuscitated, and uh, they rebuilt my skull with metal. And uh, yeah, but lo- everyone was asking me like, how's the pain in the skull, you know, but nobody was asking how I was doing emotionally, you know, um, going through something like that, what that does to you, you know, emotionally, mentally, um, spiritually. Uh, I was in a bad place, didn't want to be alive. And nobody knew I had kept it all inside. And I was able to make it through that dark time, but I wondered, like, man, how many other people have those same dark thoughts and they're not talking about it? So I was like, man, i got to tell my story. So I started playing music, got a record deal, and uh, had a few top ten hits on the radio. And then I got this opportunity to walk away from it all and go into youth prisons, detention centers, reserves, and schools telling my story. And uh, 
everybody thought of, everyone thought I was crazy for ripping up a record deal, but I did it and uh, started going to communities. And after our shows, we actually had uh, 917 students actually handed in their suicide notes after the shows and got the support they needed from school counselors and stuff. And uh, what was supposed to be a nine-month tour turned into 10 years, and it's been the most fulfilling thing I've ever been a part of. How did you get out of that dark place personally? What what pulled you out? Did someone help you? Did you see something? Was it just the music? Well, you know, everybody told me that, like, everything happens for a reason. So I lay there trying to figure out why I was hit by a semi-truck. And somebody walked up to me and said, I know the reason you were hit by a semi. And I was like, what is it? And they said, you got hit by a semi because you and your friends were going too fast on an icy road. And that sounds simple, but that was actually what set me free. Like, I thought I was a puppet, and I didn't have control of my life. And it, in that moment, I was like, okay, I got a second chance. I want to do something with this. And I, I remember, like, screaming at the sky, like, I want to do something with this second chance. And I thought I'd hear a voice inside of me telling me to, like, move to Africa and build a well or something, you know. And the first prompting I felt in my heart was to contact the semi-driver that hit me and let him know I was alive. And I was able to get a hold of him. He hadn't driven a vehicle since that day. He still thought I had died. And it was just doing that little, that one phone call was the first time I ever did something for somebody else. And it was the best feeling. And I wanted other people to experience doing things for others. And I realized that the very emotions that I thought I was cursed with, uh, you know, like depression, I also realized, you know, yes, I hurt deeply, but I can see when others are hurting. I think we lose some of the most gifted people to addictions and suicides. And when we've been out on tour, you know, we share stories of people that just, they didn't end up taking their life. You know, often when you hear about mental illness, you only hear about the stories that end with suicide. When you hear about stories about addiction, you hear about the overdoses. Our show is filled with stories of people that are still here, and we let them know you're not cursed, you're gifted. You need to channel this, channel that emotion into a song, into a poem, into a diary, into a painting. And, you know, since we've not been able to tour during the suicide, uh, this pandemic, we, um, we're actually been following up with 10 of the students that gave us suicide notes to find out where they are now. And it's just been the most incredible stories. And that documentary and our new album are about to come out very soon. And we can't wait to share some of these stories with the world. Well, that's pretty amazing. We're chatting with award-winning Canadian musician Rob Nash. You can find out more details, www.robnash.com. That's R-O-B-B-Nash.com. Your journey also includes hundreds of tattoos, but they're not your run-of-the-mill rock and roll tattoos. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, so many of these students were sending pictures and on Instagram and tagging me, showing that they were tattooing our lyrics on their arms where they used to cut. And that meant so much to me. So I took the signatures and the names off of the suicide notes that we've been given, and I covered them on my arms. My arms are both covered in these names. And again, I just want to be able to show people, look, if you're having those same dark thoughts, you're not alone. These are all names of people that had those thoughts too, and they're still here, and they're conquering the world around them. And you can see a lot of these videos if you go to robnash.ca. You know, you can, we've got a lot of stats up there and some articles about, um, you know, how this pandemic has impacted people with uh, mental illness, you know, 
prior to COVID, one in five teenagers had seriously considered suicide. And, you know, Kids Help Boom just came out with an article showing how it's gotten even worse uh, through this pandemic. And, uh, yeah, if you go to robnash.ca, you'll see a lot of these songs and stories. And, um, again, we're just so, so excited finally to get some of this material out there because this world needs hope more than ever right now. No doubt about it. Rob, really appreciate the time. A phenomenal story. Thank you for doing what you are doing. And uh, we hope to see you back on the uh, the road playing some music and, and helping a lot of people as well. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Rick. That is award-winning Canadian musician Rob Nash. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. A lot of controversy in Norfolk County. And long story short, uh, they hired an acting medical officer of health. But now the Board of Health in the region is kind of second-guessing that decision because Dr. Matt Strauss has been very critical of mask mandates and lockdowns, also called business owners who open in violation of public health orders, heroes. And he also tweeted that he'd rather give his children COVID-19 than a McDonald's Happy Meal. Another of his tweets, quote, live free or die. It's a very confusing message from a medical officer of health, even one that is an acting medical officer of health. Now, some members of Haldeman Norfolk's Board of Health looking at whether they can overturn his hiring. Norfolk County Councilor Amy Martin uh, was part of the unanimous vote to bring Dr. Strauss on board, and she joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Amy, how are you? Good. Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm not too bad. Um, how do you feel about your vote now? Yeah, definitely um, some uh, reservations and, and wanting to get together as a Board of Health and, and revisit what some next steps and options are. So what happened here? That's a great question. Um, I think there is a bigger question to tackle uh, after COVID-19, after this issue settles province-wide, because the makeup of our Board of Health actually consists of council members. And, and you know, sometimes you sit there and you scratch your head and you think, what business does a council member or a political entity have on a Board of Health? And, and you want to make sure you have um, subject matter experts on there representing the health and the wellness of, of people. So um, I think that's, a, that's the first the first part that I'd like to touch on, but this particular situation, we had um, a hiring committee, a subcommittee made up with both Haldeman and Norfolk County representation. Um, those individuals, I was not a part of that committee, but those individuals met Dr. Strauss and interviewed him, uh, and then it came to the Board of Health for a final decision. So I actually wasn't a part of the interview process, nor did I meet the doctor. However, um, we did have a, a roundtable discussion as a full board, and that's where the unanimous decision came from. Have you, heard, um, have you heard from residents in the community? Oh, absolutely, yes. Overwhelming amount of uh, correspondence coming in. And I mean, with any issue, you find people on both sides of the coin, but overwhelming uh, correspondence from Haldeman and Norfolk County residents uh, really asking how we, how we got here. Interesting to note that Norfolk's mayor has called criticism of Dr. Strauss quote-unquote preposterous and cheap political theater. Uh, your reaction to Crystal Chop's comments? 
Well, firstly, I'd like to say that I am just one Board of Health member and I'm not actually uh, speaking on behalf of the Board of Health. I'm speaking on behalf of myself and my own position here. But I don't think there's any room for politics in uh, Board of Health issues, in health-related issues, period. And my comments at, at the Board of Health meeting were that, you know, politics is safe for potholes and property taxes. This is a common sense discussion about the health and safety and well-being of 110,000 people in our health district. So I'm not going to play politics on this issue. I'd have the discussion again tomorrow and the day after. So what happens next? I understand there's another meeting coming up next week. That's correct. Yep. Monday, we're going to reconvene. We've got uh, external legal counsel going to meet us and provide us with some closed session off camera um, advice and, and some options. And we'll go from there. So are you recommending that Mr. Strauss be given the boot? Hard to say. I know this, this is going to be a political answer here. Hard to say. Uh, you've got the corporation of Norfolk County, the health unit and the health district to be responsible for. Uh, we really need to get that legal advice and see where we fall before we make any commitments or rational decisions. However, again, those comments and, and what's been said is not, is not uh, it doesn't jive with my direction and my feelings on COVID-19, nor is it the type of leadership that our counties deserve in the throes of a global pandemic. So, Lots to dig into here. Very much so. Ms. Martin, thanks for the time today on Good Morning Hamilton, and enjoy the rest of your day. You too. I appreciate it, Rick. Thanks. Amy Martin, Councillor Norfolk County, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on a very controversial topic. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The 2021 NFL season kicks off tonight in Tampa Bay. It's the defending champion Buccaneers hosting America's team, the Dallas Cowboys. And as Bucks quarterback Tom Brady pursues his unprecedented, I still can't believe I'm saying this, eighth Super Bowl ring, he's got seven of them already, a rookie from Canada is about to make his mark on the NFL. Joining us is Carolina Panthers rookie running back Chuba Hubbard. Uh, Chuba, how excited are you to kick off your career this Sunday when your Panthers host the New York Jets? I mean, I'm just ready to play football. Um, really excited, obviously. I don't know. You know, with my season kind of ending early last year, I haven't really been able to play football, play in a football game in a long time, other than, you know, obviously the preseason and stuff. But um, it's been a long time since I played in, you know, regular season balls. So um, I'm just looking forward to it, to be honest. Really excited. Now you're uh, a running back, obviously, in the Panthers, and uh, we're hearing that you're going to be returning kicks uh, perhaps to start the season. How do you feel about that? Yeah, it feels good. I mean, obviously, you know, being a running back, being a number two, um, obviously you got to be able to play special teams and stuff like that, contribute contribute to the team in any way you can. And, you know, I want to, you know, be able to do that, whether it was kick return, whether it's punt, whether it's punt return, whatever need be. And I wanted to make sure that I was available. And, you know, I have been. And, you know, I'm glad, you know, unfortunate that they, you know, trust me to, you know, be back there as the one for kick return and, you know, a handful of other special teams. So, yeah, it, it feels good, definitely. It's a pretty good number one running back on the team in Christian McCaffrey. How much are you absorbing from from what he does on a day to day basis? Yeah, I mean, I get, I guess, I ask that question every day. Um, <laughs> you know, what what are you learning from Christian? What's Christian like? This and that, and you know, obviously, you know, the best running back in the league, and obviously a great person off the field too. And you know, the biggest thing I can say, you know, I'm always trying to pick his brain. You know, being a rookie and you know, him having so much success, always trying to pick his brain without obviously, you know, staying annoying. But um, I just, I'm really just trying to learn anything from him. And the biggest thing would probably be just how much of a professional he is, Um, whether that's, you know, watching film, you know, nutrition, 
or it's, you know, even outside of football, you know, doing the right thing, staying out of the, you know, the, the media and all these things, just, you just, just being a football player and doing the right thing. So that's probably the biggest thing. From Sherwood Park, Alberta, to a superstar in the NCAA to now the NFL, how would you describe your your football journey to this point? Um, probably just like anyone else's in a way. I mean, obviously, you know, everyone has their own path, but um, you know, a lot of ups, a lot of downs, um, a lot of adversity, a lot of adversity, um, a lot of good moments. But um, I mean, it's hard for me to really describe or or yeah, describe it and put it in you know one word or something. But it's it's really just been special. It's been fun, um, a lot of learning lessons, a lot of growth. But overall, just it's, it's it's been special. And your mom didn't originally want you playing football, right? No, yeah, I did track. I've been doing tra- uh, done track now, but I was doing track up until well, I started when I was around six years old, and I was doing that all the way up till high school and. Um, track was my main sport. That's really all I did. Played a little basketball too, and yeah, obviously football came around when I was pretty young. And she was like, "Yeah, you're not doing any of that. You're not going. You're not going football." And probably after the hundred hundredth time asking, uh, she finally said, "Okay, well, I'll go try it out." And uh, she's still kind of iffy about it, but um, <laughs> as long as I don't get touched, she's happy. That's pretty good. Hey, you're doing a pretty good job of that, uh, certainly. Um... Carolina drafted you in the fourth round. A lot of running backs were taken before you. Is that serve as motivation for you? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, obviously, I look at myself and looked at myself as one of the top backs in, in, in the NCAA, and especially coming out. So, you know, the fact that, you know, a bunch of guys got drafted before me definitely, definitely, you know, uh, made the chip deeper on my shoulder. Um, but at the end of the day, the biggest thing for me was just ending up in a situation that was good for myself and my family. And I definitely felt that, you know, I ended up where I needed to be, you know, by the grace of God. So, you know, the draft and stuff is, is weird and a bunch of different stuff happens. But the biggest thing at the end of the day, week one, got to show up in place. So that's all that matters. And no matter where you got drafted or what happened there, you still got to show up and play. You still got to play ball. So um that's all that matters so i'm just blessed to be in this opportunity that's all i needed and you know we'll see what happens from there <laughs> i know we're tight for time for one more for me you're part of uh, being a rookie you're part of DeZone's uh, rookie diary series what's that been like it's been special i mean for me to actually you know be able to document um this whole process of like the draft um camp my first NFL season, it's, it's really been special. And I think it's big for, you know, even kids back home in Canada, you know, to be able to see it. Because for me as a young kid, I never really got to see anything like this. So the fact that, you know, I'll be able to, you know, show and my my progression and how everything goes and how, how it really works. I didn't even know how it worked before either. Um, it'll, be, it'll be good. And, you know, I hope it, you know, informs more people of, what the process is like and everything that takes to, you know, to get to this point. Well, you got a great attitude. you got a lot of talent. Uh, you're going to go far. Uh, best of luck uh, through this season and, uh, and beyond. Thanks for the chat.
Thank you. I appreciate you. And thanks again, Chubby. He's got a great uh, head on his shoulders. Certainly uh, an awesome upbringing in Sherwood Park, uh, Alberta. That's uh, basically Edmonton. Off to the NCAA where he was a superstar at Oklahoma State. Now going to make his mark with the Panthers of the NFL. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.